This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. What is the truth? Where did it go? Ask Oswald and Ruby know. Shut your mouth, say the last hold out. Business is business, and it's a murder most found. Welcome back to Dylan Through the Decades, our mini-series that explores the life and music of the one and only Bob Dylan. In our last episode, we discussed perhaps the most consistent and stable decade of Bob's life. Bob spent the first years of the new millennium touring regularly and releasing music that was critically well-received. He published his memoirs, hosted a radio show, and even returned to the silver screen. Bob appeared quite comfortable in his new elder statesman role for the music industry. But this stretch was not without its eccentricities, as Bob closed out the decade with an unexpected Christmas album and a bizarre run-in with the police. Bad boys, bad boys, what you gonna do? What you gonna do when they come for you? Today's episode will focus primarily on two things. Naturally, Bob's discography is one. The other is his increasingly large collection of awards and trophies from prestigious organizations. The 2010s saw Bob awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom, the Music Cares Person of the Year, and even a Nobel Prize for Literature, just to name a few. You know, I guess I was known as never one of them rock and roll singers that was going to win any Nobel Prize. Getting back to Bob's studio releases, he opened the decade on a strong note with Tempest in 2012. This album marked the end of a 15-year streak of critically well-received albums of original material dating back to 1997's Time Out of Mind. Listen to that Duquesne whistle blowing Blowing like gonna sweep my world away When it comes to writing lyrics, Bob's creative juices may have been going a bit dry at this point, as he would spend the rest of the decade focusing on composition and arrangement over the course of three covers records. The first two of these covers records would focus primarily on songs originally made famous by Frank Sinatra. nothing at all If it's love, there is no in-between. The third of these projects would be a triple album of standards from the Great American Songbook. In March of 2020, the COVID-19 pandemic had reached all corners of the globe and put everyone's plans on hold. In the midst of this chaos and uncertainty, Bob surfaced with his first original song in eight years an epic 17-minute track called Murder Most Foul. It was a dark day in Dallas, November 63. A day that would live on in infamy. 
President Kennedy was a rattle high. Good day to be living and a good day to die. A full-length album of original music would follow just a few months later. Rough and Rowdy Ways would catch fans largely off guard, but it would be a welcome surprise as it showed Bob could still create beautiful music now nearly 60 years into his recording career. Bob would return to the road in November 2021, launching a tour to promote this record, starting with a show in Milwaukee that your humble hosts, Chris and I, were able to attend. Today's episode was recorded in the summer of 2022, and the Rough and Rowdy Ways tour is scheduled to go through 2024. Will that be Bob's final album? I wouldn't bet on it, but only he can say for sure. In any case, this episode will serve as the conclusion of our Dylan Through the Decades mini-series, but Chris and I will return with a new songwriter retrospective at some point in the future. So to anyone who's listened to any amount of our Dylan coverage, I can't thank you enough. It has been an absolute joy to produce these episodes with Chris, so I really appreciate everyone who has tuned in. And I also need to say thank you to Chris, not just for doing these episodes with me, but for introducing me to Bob's music in the first place. You've been haranguing me about Bob for some 15 years, and it's finally paid off. I am now on board. (laughs) Thanks, buddy. Now, one last thing before we get into the episode. I should note that we opened this podcast with a discussion about a small controversy that involved one of Bob's songs here in Milwaukee. Unfortunately, there was an incident at a local bowling alley in which some white patrons played Hurricane on the jukebox with the intention of upsetting some black patrons given the song's use of the N-word in its lyrics. This created a bit of a stir on social media, so we thought we would take this opportunity to discuss this crass, racist use of an explicitly anti-racist song written and recorded by a man who has always stood in opposition to racism and bigotry. So without further ado, let's dive in to this most recent decade of Bob's career. Pour yourself one last glass of Heaven's Door Whiskey, as over the next hour and change, Chris and I will chronicle Bob's music and stories from this era. This is Dylan Through the Decades, Part 6, Bob Dylan in the 2010s. You won't amount much the people I'll say, cause I didn't play guitar behind my head, never pandered. Never acted proud, never took off my shoes, threw them into the crowd. Goodbye, Jimmy Reed, goodbye and good night. Put a jewel in your crowd and I'll put out the lights. One thing I wanted to start with actually is cheating. It was um, post-2020, so it doesn't fall into the, the 2010s. But I wanted to talk about it because it's sort of a current controversy that happened in our hometown, caused a little bit of a stir on social media, and it was just a very interesting and unfortunate way to see Bob kind of show back up in um, public discourse. So what happened was a couple of weeks ago, a woman went on Twitter 
to post about a racist encounter she experienced at a local bowling alley here in Milwaukee. The woman is black. And she was telling a story about how she was at this bowling alley and she was playing songs on the jukebox. Now, apparently some of these songs must have uh, annoyed a couple of the white patrons at the bar. And these white patrons then went up to the jukebox, put in their money, played some songs of their own with that skip function where you pay a dollar extra to get your songs to play first. And one of the songs they selected was Hurricane by Bob Dylan, and reportedly they were singing along, and the woman posted on Twitter that uh, she was uh, caught particularly off guard by the use of the N-word in that song. Sure. So she posts this on social media. She mentions that when she complains to the manager on staff, the manager kind of brushed her off, so this is why she went on social media with that. And the next day, the bowling alley issued an apology, blamed touch tunes the jukebox company and then said they would have hurricane removed from their account now on twitter and reddit of course there were all kinds of big-brained free thinkers who were like hey this is cancel culture you don't even know what the song is about the song is actually anti-racist and as you can see the discourse went right off the rails so when i saw this story i I wanted to tweet about it, so I reached out to her on Twitter, confirmed her story, checked with her to make sure I had my facts straight, and then I posted a a tweet thread about it. And I guess my point, what I post on social media, is that obviously Hurricane is not a racist song, and Bob Dylan is not a racist, right? We know this. We could point to all kinds of things that would make that point. You know, Bob was at the freaking civil rights march with MLK. He wrote The Lonesome Death of Hattie Carroll. This controversy is not about Bob. It's about weaponizing some of the man's work to, I'd say, do something awfully racist. To place that song with that lyric and sing along to it with the intention to upset black patrons in a public space who might not know the song. You know, the song is like 40 years old. You know, it doesn't get played on radio. Not everybody knows this fucking song. I just think it was interesting to see sort of, in a very sad way, people weaponize a great tool against injustice, which was the song Hurricane, as that song did genuine good for Reuben Carter, raised money for him helped his defense fund, was widely credited for getting him a second trial. Seeing that used 40 years later to annoy, upset people for playing their own music. Yeah. So you heard about this too, right? So just to refresh my memory, because no, we, you, di- you didn't say the name of the bowling alley. Um, <laughs> so just, just to be clear, this is a bowling alley, I think that's on the east side of Milwaukee. It is. Uh, I think I'm Farwell. Um... <laughs> It starts with a, a, a an L. It right? is uh, Laya, and it ends with like a Erk. It, it's a very identifiable like spot. You yeah. might say it's a, a landmark of right. sorts a downtown. Landmark sort of bowling yeah. alley. Uh, yeah. yeah, lanes are Next, marked yes. on the land. That would be okay. This coming back to me now. And the management did nothing about this really until the following day when they were forced and their hands were forced. Right. Right. That's okay. Good. I'll definitely continue to patronize that place. Um, <laughs> Anyways, um, no, I think you, you nailed it. 
The individual in question who was the African-American patron was put into a position where she's being asked effectively to contextualize the song in terms of how it was perceived at the time it was written, and that's fine, and I get that, and I think that if we're looking at it from the perspective of the time period, that's great. But what's not being done is individuals asked to contextualize her perspective as an African-American woman who's just trying to bowl with her family yeah. and her entire life up to that point having to live as an African-American woman in the city of Milwaukee, which unfortunately is probably the most segregated city in the mm-hmm. United States to this day. But furthermore, using a song which is inherently supposed to be a driver for progressive action for civil rights in a way which was just effectively shouting the N-word yep. along with the song to drive one point is even worse than if it was, you know, I'm trying to think of, uh, who's that, that incredibly racist, like, country joke something? David Allen Cohn? There you go. That's it. It is worse than that because yeah. you're taking something which is designed to do the exact opposite effect and using it in a way that is antithetical to the intention. The fact that it was done in such a way as to intentionally provoke a response from somebody who is a person of color is gross. It's just gross. Absolutely. Yeah, and I, I guess what the aspect of it that I cannot stand is the knee-jerk bitching and moaning about cancel culture, where it's just like, this woman does not hate Bob Dylan and is not trying to cancel Bob Dylan. Whoever wrote the song, it's irrelevant, but because it's Bob's name and because it's a known entity, the idiots on Reddit are like, you're trying to cancel, you don't even get the meaning of the song. And when you miss the point that bad, it's it's just no wonder like we can't have any fucking discourse in this country. Well, so that's my grumpy old man take. Everybody just needs, if you're gonna have an opinion on something, do your fucking research. Yes. Do like, and it took me. It took me. <laughs> it took me maybe ten minutes at the most. Five, right. ten minutes to just do a couple of Google searches, read a couple of posts from the people who were actually there mm-hmm. to realize, like, oh, there's more to the story. It's not that fucking hard. No, no, you're right. Okay, that's our report on sort of a local controversy. Didn't make the news, but it did. Uh, you know, again, the bar did issue a sort of uh, ham-fisted apology, and there was a lot of uproar on social media. I thought it was an interesting little scenario seeing Bob pop up, and certainly not a positive way. But uh, I will say, ironically, I was at that establishment literally a week before this. Oh. <laughs> That's funny, and that'll be the last time you're ever there, right? Yeah, sure. Yeah, okay, we'll see. All right. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, Or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good. Well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. 
Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash Pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash Pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash Pantheon. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Let's move on to the episode proper, okay? We're going to start off the 2010s on a positive note. We're going to start off on May 29th, 2012. President Barack Obama awards Bob Dylan the Presidential Medal of Freedom. This is one of many high-profile awards that Bob has got over uh, his career. But to me... This marks the start of what I like to call the uh, never-ending Lifetime Achievement Award Tour. (laughs) Because it seems that every year in the 2010s, he was receiving some institution's Lifetime Achievement Award. And as we go on, it seems like most of these awards came because the higher-ups in these organizations just wanted a picture with Bob. (laughs) Now, I'm not saying that about Obama, but I'm not necessarily not saying that about Obama. Here's a snippet from his speech. Today, everybody from Bruce Springsteen to U2 uh, owes Bob a debt of gratitude. Uh, There is not a a bigger giant uh, in the history of uh, American music. Uh, All these years later, uh, he's still chasing that sound, uh, still searching for a little bit of truth. And uh, I have to say that I am a really big fan. (laughs) To me, like that last sentence is like, well, there it is. (laughs) That's, I think, the driving point for so many of these awards. And not to oversell Dylan's, what he did in terms of civil rights or anything Mm -hmm. else. I mean, at the end of the day, he's a a songwriter. Mm -hmm. And I don't think he would ever say that he did much more than that either. I think it is prescient, and I think it is, it's, it's... it means something that the first African-American president was the one who awarded him. Uh, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, that award. Because he was. Again, he was at the March on Washington. Yeah. He, gosh, it, you know, it's, it's weird to even think about it. Uh, it's just the, the level of change that occurred within that man's lifetime. Uh, yes. From the March on Washington to receiving that from the first African-American president is, is nuts. I don't think there's a single guy in Obama's generation who went to Harvard who wasn't probably a Dylan fan yeah. at some point in his, his his time there. So it makes sense. It's it's cool. I get it. I think it's it's, it's well deserved. But to your point, it does start to become the elder statesman kind of period with Bob yeah. Dylan, where yes. the quality of his output is more sparing. Mm-hmm. But, but the elder is really coming <laughs> to the forefront of that. Certainly. Do you think it's like uh, you know in England when uh, you know like Mick J or Paul McCartney uh, gets knighted. Yeah, I think it's the closest thing we have, right? Okay. We will not cover all of Bob's Lifetime Achievement Awards, but we will talk about a couple others today. But before we get to that, let's talk about his first album of the 2010s. Tempest was released in September 2012, and it is one of only two albums of original material from him this decade. 
Did you get Tempest when it came out? No. Did you pay much attention to it around that time? I didn't. Okay. Have you gotten into it at all before we were listening to it for this? This one? No. Mm. For the overall Dylan project? Yeah. The answer is yes. I did start listening to it. Just sort of extending myself when we were doing the initial whiskey sampling one that we did. Um, I did I did listen to Tempest. Okay, very good. So what are your initial thoughts on, on that record? I really liked it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think the initial critical response to it was probably more mixed than it really should have been, or even negative. Yes. I think Pitchfork, I, we talked about it, said something to the effect of, he sounds literally insane. <laughs> they, they said that in a negative way. I would say that it's kind of a positive thing. Sure. He, he sounds like a crazy old man. And even his vocals and everything are, are even raspier than they normally are. But still, you hear the lyrics. He's enunciating, at least. Yes. The writing is, I think, very solid. There's a couple songs in there that legitimately kind of disturb me. Okay. Pay and Blood. Pay and Blood is maybe his scratchiest, roughest vocal yeah. performance. I got something in my pocket. Make your eyeballs sweet. I got dogs can tear you. Live from them. I'm circling around the southern zone. I pay blood. He's got dogs that will rip your limb from wind. <laughs> yeah. It's dirty. I love it. That is a good one. There was a music video for Duquesne Whistle, which was a darkly funny music video, but it definitely captures sort of the vibe of the overall record. There's this Pepe Le Pew lovesick character yeah. who's in love with a girl, and he chases after her, trying to give her a rose, and she's not into him. And then she well, calls the cops on him gets, or something. Yeah, it gets pretty... It gets progressive. I mean, it's what would really happen in real life if a overzealous guy kept trying to go after a woman and they did all the tropes of like a rom-com or even more of almost like a silent film or like your, your point, like a Pepe Le Pew kind of thing. Yeah. It felt like Looney Tunes. It felt Looney Tunes-ish. I think it was supposed to be almost more like a silent film. But yeah. either way, he's, he's lovesick and he's trying to go after her. He takes the rose out of Ro- a, that's a, it. the florist's. He's not paying for it, just like you would in a movie where he's kind of walking, he's kind of dancing by, he takes it. Yes. And then he does it the second time, the police get called. So the first time he ends up going up to her car and she... she, she uh, pepper ma- sprays she him. She maces him or pepper sprays him. <laughs> the second time, he's still at it and then the, the police get called and they... Oh no, the police are after him. He ends up trying to get around a ladder. He bumps the ladder. He bumps the ladder. The guy falls off the ladder. So when he comes around again, the guy on the ladder is in some sort of gang and they grab him. It's like mafia or something. And he pulls him into a van, <laughs> and then they just beat the daylights out of him. And it's a pretty graphic beating, oh, too. Oh, yeah. No, it's brutal. Even more bizarre than that, Dylan's crew. Yes. They keep cutting to Dylan, like, singing while he's walking. He's not even singing. He's, he's not walking singing. with his, like, posse. And his posse is insane looking. Yeah. It's a child yeah. holding a briefcase. <laughs> yeah. A child. There's a um, a couple of Well, I guess the trope would say. be gangbanger and there was no, probably I was gonna say like but they're they're like they're like Latin American guys and they're yeah. wearing like yeah, they have like the one button buttoned up on the top. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With yeah. the you know, and then a strangely tall Asian woman with platinum blonde hair. But uh, the boys it's bizarre. And they don't do anything, they just walk. They walk over and they eventually walk over they, the uh Maybe corpse, probably just heavily beaten and unconscious protagonist of our story. Now, you noticed how crazy Bob's crew looked. I noticed how fucking crazy Bob looked. Bob looked like he was wearing, what do you call that? Like mortician's makeup? (laughs) 
He looked like they, it was he was wearing makeup that they put on corpses for a funeral. Like it was uh Well, once you start looking like Bob. Right. <laughs> Can't you hear that Duquesne whistle blowing? Blowing like the sky's gonna blow apart. He looked like he was having fun, but this is truly one of the most bizarre watches. Like, he's made so many, like, weird videos, but this one takes the cake. I was gonna say, for a guy who hates to be looked at, we would think from our experience, right? Concerts, other things, with Dylan not really being in the spotlight, he makes some damn good videos. I guess he just pulls in really good talent to make these videos, Mm -hmm. because it's Bob Dylan, Mm -hmm. and say no to Bob Dylan. Mm -hmm. Because before this, the last one he did was uh, Beyond Here Lies Nothing, which was just, I don't know, domestic violence city. I don't even know how you would characterize that. Well, we talked about uh, the Must Be Santa video. Oh, I forgot about that one. And even that one's chaotic. That's cool, too, and it's chaotic, and it's weird, and it's, yeah... Okay, so a couple other observations of some of the songs in this album. There's one called Roll On John, which is a tribute to John Lennon. Yep. I actually liked that one quite a bit. Although I must say, if we're talking about tribute songs to John Lennon, I prefer Fall of the Peacemakers by Molly Hatchett. You can't see the podcast, um, but you have to just imagine me giving Joe a long... There. <laughs> a long blank expression. A long blank stare. Are you not familiar with Molly Hatchet? I'm familiar with Molly Hatchet, unfortunately. Yeah. I, no, I'm not. There. <laughs> I am just kidding around. All right. And then there's another song on the on the album called Tin Angel, which I also liked. And I liked it because it sounds like uh, Shiver My Timbers from Muppet Treasure Island. Jesus. <laughs> I'll have to. I, I mean, I love Muppet Treasure. I have to go back. Oh, sure. Yeah, no, that's that's kind of like I, I've watched it quite a few times. I will play both tracks and let um, the listener decide. Well, he threw down his helmet and his cross-handled sword. He renounced his faith. He denied his Lord. Crawled on his belly, put his ear to the wall. One way or oh, another, put an end to it all. Sailed their ship across the ocean blue, a bloodthirsty captain and a cutthroat crew. It's as dark a tale as was ever told of the lust for treasure and the love of gold. Shiver my timbers, shiver my sides, The interesting thing with Tin Angel, and this is this is what I was going to say with the whole album, including the dark lyrics and everything. It definitely feels like he's, and maybe this is 2012 that he wrote this, so maybe he was, again, eight years ahead of his time, mm-hmm. right? It really feels like he's coming to terms or trying to come to terms with the, just, like, the brutality of the racism that this country is built on. Oh, okay. In, in Tin Angel, I think he talks about the local Ku Klux Klan mm-hmm. dragon t- stealing his woman and leaving with her. And oh, right. Scarlet Town talks about Uncle Tom still working for Uncle Bill. There's all these very underneath the current, like, sort of, Brutal references. It's an intro. I really like the album. I thought it was underrated when it came out. And I think it still remains underrated. I think it's good writing. Really good writing. Yeah. And do you think uh, that's why it was such a bit of a whiff with the critics is because it was ahead of its time. And as much as critics love to sniff their own farts, they are never ahead of their time. The appreciation for Bob 
I'm gonna call him Bob. This is the first time I think I've called him Bob. In, Absolutely. In our pod, is uh, is very seasonal. Okay. I think part of the reason Rough and Rowdy now we'll talk about it later, but part of the reason that Rough and Rowdy now has been so well received is because the pendulum has swung. We're back in this. You know, we're all loving Bob again. Mm-hmm. And it's just weird. I don't know that the, the product necessarily warrants it, but there's something in the zeitgeist that I think pushes that. Interesting. Yeah, I, th- I think you're onto something. Okay. So let's uh, move forward up to uh, February 6th, 2015. Bob receives another award. He receives the Music Cares Person of the Year Award. This is a pretty big event in the music industry every year. And there's been some sort of um, famous controversies around the show. This is actually the Music Cares uh, award show with Fleetwood Mac marked the last time the classic lineup ever played together before Lindsey Buckingham got fired. And that was like, that event was why he got fired. But (laughs) I'd like to know more about that after the pod. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) And and Bob's event was sort of... uh, I'm not going to say controversial, but sort of interesting in the same way because Bob made a speech at the event, which in itself is a little rare, and it is infamous for grinding a lot of axes and not being what people were expecting from him. Now, that is really what's in character for Bob is not delivering what people expect, but I don't think anyone saw this coming. So I've got a couple of poll quotes and we'll go through this. I wonder if it gives a, a window into like where his mindset was in 2015. So one of the first things I don't think you or I would have expected to hear is that he, while thanking people, says, I've got to say thank you to Peter, Paul, and Mary, who I knew all separately before they ever became a group. I didn't even think of myself as writing songs for others to sing, but it was starting to happen, and it couldn't have happened to or with a better group. A so, rousing endorsement of Peter, yeah. Paul, and Mary. I like Peter, Paul. We, but again, I, I, I also said I'm a huge nerd for liking Peter, Paul, and Mary, <laughs> but I do like Peter, Paul, and Mary. Yeah, so I guess uh, Bob was pretty happy with uh, their covers. Among other people, he also thanked Joan Baez, Johnny Cash, and Jimi Hendrix, all of which were appropriate. So it seems that he was, at the start of the speech, in a good mood, heaping praise on some of his contemporaries. <laughs> and then weirdly... He took sort of a left turn and started grinding an axe against people who didn't believe in him, or at least people he thought did not believe in him. Uh, Ahmet Erdogan, for instance, the guy who uh, ran uh, Atlantic Records, Bob said, uh, didn't have faith in him. And here's the quote I pulled for someone else. Bob said, Merle Haggard didn't think much of my songs, but Buck Owens did, and Buck even recorded one of my early songs. Now, I admire Merle. Mama tried. Tonight the bottle let me down. I'm a lonesome fugitive. I love Merle, but he's not Buck. Buck Owens wrote Together Again, and that song trumps anything that ever came out of Bakersfield. So the next day, out of confusion, Merle posted on his Facebook page, Bob Dylan, I've admired your songs since 1964. Don't think twice, Bob. Willie and I just recorded it on our new album. Yeah. I've heard some Buck Owens, uh, but Merle Haggard, I mean, he was a studio musician for, yeah, he's one of the better, what? What a confusing... It's bizarre, actually. Yeah. Just a bizarre part of the speech. Bob, we talked about this last time, Bob and Merle toured together. I know, yeah. I was thinking the same thing, like, what did they tour? Yeah. Maybe so... he pissed, pissed them off on tour, he did something. Yeah. 
Very weird. It's making fun for getting arrested in New Jersey. Yeah. <laughs> Later in the speech, Bob turned his attention to critics, saying, Critics have been giving me a hard time since day one. <laughs> critics say I can't sing. I croak. Sound like a frog. Why don't critics say that same thing about Tom Waits? Critics say my voice is shot, but I have no voice. Why don't they say those things about Leonard Cohen? Why do I get special treatment? Critics say that I can't carry a tune, that I talk my way through a song, really. I never heard that said about Lou Reed. Why does he get to go scot-free? What have I done to deserve this special attention? Why me, Lord? I always say that to myself. Yeah, I mean, for a guy who's receiving uh, was it Congressional Medals of Freedom, <laughs> very, a little bit of a persecution complex, but I, I get his point. I, I don't know if I'd throw Lou Reed in there, though. Lou Reed can actually kind of carry a tune. Cohen and Waits, I, would, I understand the... Especially Cohen. I mean, Waits has a, you would say, I think, a style. Almost like a Thruvian throat singing or whatever the fuck they call it, the Mongolian, like, (laughs) like, but uh, I can understand the comparison to like Cohen and even Lou Reed to some extent. Who is he talking about, though? What critics? Every critic. Literally every single human being who's ever discussed Bob Dylan. Us, Joe, on the show. (laughs) Multiple times made fun of the way that Bob Dylan sings. And I agree that we probably would not be saying the same thing about a Tom Waits or a Lou Reed or... I sure would. I can't stand Tom Waits, first of all. And and these are the same critics. Well, Rolling Stone puts Bob songs in their top ten since they've been they doing say, top ten. But they do say shit about his voice, Joe. Yeah, I don't know. It, it, it's like missing the forest for the trees, where it's just like, yes, they observe that your voice croaks and is, I, and is froggy. But, like, it's that is coming with... A mountain of praise. Like, how, how do you focus yeah. on, I guess this is what it means to be an artist, to be so so particular and sensitive yeah. that you miss the, I mean, I thought Bob was a little more, you know, down to earth with this because he doesn't like the worship and the praise. But he's worried about a couple of rock critics saying that his voice is froggy. I'm sorry, Bob, that's accurate. <laughs> This is a weird axe to grind. You, you get the impression that he's a human being who maybe was having like a really bad day that day. Like, honestly, like, yeah. you get the impression that maybe he just like he prepared the speech about thanking Peter Paul and Mary or something. <laughs> maybe they, they were like, "We love your voice, Bob," and so he wanted to really. Oh. <laughs> I don't know. That just it's a weird. That is a weird flex. I will say that, but I kind of get what he's saying. Dylan's voice is the most mimic we both have done, like, on this podcast. Okay, okay. I don't disagree with that at all. That is, that, now that's fair. And I would say I prefer Bob's voice to pretty much everybody he mentioned in his rant there. I'm not, come on, Lou Reed? I don't know a lot of Lou Reed stuff. I'm just oh, saying, generally speaking, that's, like... That's part, that's part two, Lou Reed, oh, okay. two decades, Joe. <laughs> we'll see. Uh, <laughs> yes, I get his point. I can't say I disagree with it. But it is such a bizarre... I I think it just misses the forest for the trees here. But he didn't let up there. He continued on. Critics have said that I've made a career out of confounding expectations. Really? Because that's all I do? That's how I think about it? Confounding expectations. Like I stay up at night thinking how to do it. 
What do you do for a living, man? Oh, I confound expectations. Confounding expectations. I don't even know what that means or who has time for it. <laughs> now, this is spot That's on. actually kind of badass. That's one of the coolest things. That's great. Yeah, I love that. That's pretty funny. <laughs> I mean, the, the guy's got a hell of a sense of humor. He's witty as, as hell. He's not giving credit for how funny he is. Yes. Both in his just off-the-cuff remarks and things, and also in terms of some of his lyrics... They're hilarious. Yeah. Just earlier today, we were texting each other, country will grow. Yeah. I shall be free. It's a boner joke. It's, it's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. So that was just a couple of excerpts from his Music Cares 2015 awards speech. It will not be the last award we, we talk about today, but let's move back to music. So shortly after this speech, maybe this speech was designed to stir up a little press because he had a record out. Shadows in the Night was released... In February 2015. We're running in the shadows in the night. <laughs> so you, you guys are just listening. I have to be in the room with that. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, this is a covers album, and he did not sing any Pat Benatar. This is a Frank Sinatra cover album, or at least a cover album of songs that Frank himself covered. I mean, obviously, Frank wasn't a songwriter, but, you know, this is very much designed as a tribute to Frank. These songs are all part of what you would call the Great American Songbook, and it's the first of a trilogy of records we're going to touch on, but we're not going to spend a lot of time with these records because you and I had very similar experiences listening to them. And when I say you and I had similar experiences listening to the three Sinatra cover records, is that we, oh, we quit halfway through before. No, this is not. I listened to all the Sinatra. <laughs> I did. I listened to this one. I listened to, what's the next one? Fallen Angels. Yeah, it's very original cover with uh, poker. Uh, oh, right, right. <laughs> I didn't dislike the Sinatra records. This one was, you know, I, I think if he had done one. It's kind of an interesting take on some of because he's so he's so different than Sinatra in mm -hmm. terms of his style, delivery, just everything. It's kind of an interesting take on some of these. I think one one critic said something to the effect that it's, it's it reminded them of like late era Billy Holiday in terms mm -hmm. of just the way he emotes and everything else. It's not wonderful. This isn't something I'm going to be listening to at all. <laughs> Yeah, I would say uh, strong agree. The first album, Shadows in the Night, I'm okay with. I didn't mind listening to that. I thought his vocals were clear and not ragged like they were on Tempest. Sure. I listened to this album along with the Sinatra tracks, the Sinatra versions of the songs he was doing because I wanted to see the differences. Yeah. I thought the production was stellar. It matched the production on Frank's sure. albums. His voice isn't better than Frank's, but, like, he sounded good. This was a nice project. And, like you said, if he had just left it at this, I wouldn't really think anything negative about the idea of, like, covering Sinatra songs. But he continued on for two more records, and the second one after this is a triple album. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is a mountain of music that all very much sounds the same and if it's not your jam it gets downright miserable i mean i quit on fallen angels and i absolutely quit before i even got to the halfway point on triplicate so sorry you know late era bob fans i'm, I'm not delivering on this but i tapped out 
Triplicate, I think, so listening to it for this and trying to be somewhat methodical and listening to it was almost impossible. Yeah. I could see putting it on and just having it in the background. Yeah. Not paying attention to it at all. I didn't I didn't dislike the Sinatra records as much as I think you did. But again, there's nothing really there that's wonderful. I will say, I'm happy you finally went on record as saying that you think that Dylan certainly does not have a better voice than Frank Sinatra. <laughs> Yeah, that's my hot take. I will stand by that. <laughs> I'll take anybody on in the comments. I don't know if this is controversial or not, but guys, <laughs> Frank Sinatra probably has a better voice yeah, than Bob yeah. And you know what? I think Eric Clapton's a better guitar player than Bob, right. too. I'll, I'll go to bat for that. Hey, man, the mouth harps his instrument, all right? Okay. <laughs> the night we called it a day. Soft through the dark The hoot of an owl in the sky Did you watch the music video for The Night We Called It A Day off of Shadows in the Night? No. I did. It's black and white, shot like film noir. It has Robert Davi in it as sort of like some sort of 1930s gangster. Wait, Robert Davi of The Profiler? The 1990s psychological thriller TV show? Yes. Also, of License to Kill. Oh, okay. The best James Bond movie. Mm. <laughs> Here we go. Today's the first day of the rest of your life. <laughs> Here we go. Hot takes all, all around. The video ends with uh, Bob and his leading lady shooting each other in an elevator, and I think Bob survives and gets away in a car or something. It's not bad. It was like, it caught the vibe of the record, and this is why I kind of like this first one. But listening to Fallen Angels right after Shadows in the Night, I was absolutely worn out. So, yeah, Fallen Angels and Triplicate really do not do a whole lot for me. Okay, how about this? Why do you think he made these records? So we talked about this a little bit in the 90s. I think he realized that when he's not inspired, a better choice than just making crap music... Yeah. of his own device is to just do covers of Americana and standards and in this case for some strange <laughs> reason two albums of Sinatra covers mm -hmm. would you rather listen to this or Empire Burlesque yeah exactly I'm asking you I'm thinking I'm thinking yeah. about it <laughs> probably this probably do I have to listen to all a triplicate like when I <laughs> Chris you have to sit down and listen no, to either yeah. One disc of Triplicate <laughs> or all of or or Empire Burlesque versus all of Triplicate, all of Triplicate, and then Empire Burlesque. It'd be like I'll listen to Empire Burlesque if I don't have to listen to all three discs of Triplicate. That's funny, yeah. And these are all songs that are what you would call part of the Great American Songbook. Yeah. One thing I thought of, and I wonder if this registers at all, is that I don't know if you know, but Steve Miller and Glenn Fry both did single disc albums that are not exactly like this, but share some common ground. And when I learned about those records, both of those guys said that the motivation for doing an album like that of these old standards was for their parents, like a tribute to the music they grew up with as kids you know, maybe their parents were still alive, so they wanted to, you know, present them with, you know, their versions of their parents' favorite songs. I don't 
have any idea if that factored in for Bob, but maybe. I somehow doubt that for Bob. (laughs) Okay, maybe not for his parents, but what about his parents' generation when he thinks back on just his youth? I think Dylan truly just appreciates that music. If we learned anything from the theme time radio hour, you know, that is absolutely the case, is that he not just loves these old standards. I mean, he knows them like an encyclopedia. When you get down to it, I bet this is Bob's truest comfort zone musically. I mean, he's making music in that style now Mm -hmm. for the last 22 years. Yeah. Basically since Love and Theft. Any final thoughts on any of these three records? Do you expect to ever listen to any of them again? <laughs> I told you. I, I, I said I can see myself making uh, like Italian food, and I'm like, oh, I'm not really in the mood for Dino or, or Frank tonight, so I'm going to throw on uh, Shadows in the Night. But I probably that might not happen ever. Yeah, very good. <laughs> the Night We Called It A Day music video, worth a watch. I'll check it out. A lot of his, his covers of the, on that album, specifically the first one, you know, I'm, I'm a fool to watch you. His version's kind of haunting. I like it. Full Moon and Empty Arms is not bad. It's not without its charms. Sure. I mean, it's it's good execution for what it is, but, yeah. you know, the target is just so far away from Diminishing what Diminishing returns with Fallen Angels and then certainly with Triple K. Yeah. All right. Let's move on to the final award we'll briefly touch on. As if you couldn't get any bigger than the Presidential Medal of Freedom, in October 2016, Bob Dylan is awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature, which he does not accept in person until April of 2017 at a private ceremony in Stockholm. This award, of course, was foreshadowed in the classic film that we watched Hearts of Fire. That's true. true. I'm all saying something stupid, huh? We're always talking without thinking, right? You know, I guess I was known as never one of them rock and roll singers that was going to win any Nobel Prize. Is that what you call it? Nobel Prize? When we watched this movie a couple of months ago, both of us were like, oh, because of the Nobel Prize. We know because of hindsight. But, like, take the Nobel Prize thing out of it. In that movie, what the fuck is he talking about? What rock star was winning the Nobel Prize? I thought we had left Hearts of Hearts of Fire behind us. Never. Um, it's a damn good movie. I don't know what he's referencing, and I think maybe it's just it's self-referential. It was directed at himself as a critique of him being seen more as a songwriter than a musician. That's my take on maybe what he was going for for that. Okay. Uh, or he didn't write it at all, and he just had to say it. Oh, yeah. Some lousy script writer was just like, what are rock stars winning One at? One the eggs. <laughs> also <laughs> them. <laughs> what a great he's, movie. He's a roundhouse punch. Yeah. Good Lord, that movie's insane. <laughs> okay. This is going to become a Hearts of Fire only <laughs> podcast from here on out. Now. One of today's most acclaimed young actors, Rupert Everett. One of tomorrow's hottest singers, Fiona. And in the role that takes you beyond the legend, Bob Dylan. Hearts of Fire. Now, to his credit, his speech for the Nobel Prize was way more, I would say, appropriate for the event. He talks a lot about literature. 
in his speech, particularly works like Moby Dick, All Quiet on the Western Front, and The Odyssey is being very influential on him. These are some of his favorite works, and I will pull one quote, and he says, Our songs are alive in the land of the living, but songs are unlike literature. They're meant to be sung, not read. The words in Shakespeare's plays were meant to be acted on the stage, just as lyrics and songs are meant to be sung, not read on a page. And I hope some of you get the chance to listen to these lyrics the way they were intended to be heard, in concert or on record, or however people are listening to songs these days. Basically saying, yeah, I don't, I don't do literature, so I'm, I don't know what I'm doing here. <laughs> no, I don't, no I that's don't, not true. I don't think that's what he's saying. I agree with what he's saying. The only pushback I would give, and again, I think this comes down to him seeing himself fundamentally as somebody who's a songwriter, is that uh, I'm an English major. I have seen in in public like one Shakespeare play performed live mm. in my whole life. I've read almost all of Shakespeare. You know, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. He okay. He mentions Homer, right? He mentions yeah. the Odyssey. So the Odyssey, generally speaking, is believed to have been derived from the oral tradition in which it would have been right. spoke. The entire thing would have been spoken, right? I understand what he's saying, and I agree with it. At the same time, he's kind of wrong. <laughs> Do you think this is a should be the start of a trend? Like they should start giving the Nobel Prize to more songwriters? I would hope not. Yeah, I would. I would say no. I, there, there are awards for songwriters already. Well, it's not just that. I just don't. I don't think. This is what I'm saying. With the exception of Dylan, I don't mm. think there's anyone who would be potentially really deserving it. I would agree, and I would also say that I left out a very important fact about this award. Why he received the award is a big part of the award was accredited to his work on the project Tarantula. That's not true. <laughs> is you absolutely not true. Thing. I sputtered for a second. I'm like, did he... What? <laughs> that is absolutely not But that's true. a good example of why, again... It's why it's iffy for me. Should he have even like right? The examples of him actually write like the liner notes from Highway 61, Tarantula. These are things where he actually sat down and was like, "I'm gonna do lit," and it mm. <laughs> <laughs> questionable. Okay, let's uh, let's move on. We're actually gonna get out of the 2010s very briefly for a second here, but that is just because this is serving as our conclusion, and I don't want to put off talking about his most recent album of original material off until some undetermined episode in the future. We are going to talk about Rough and Rowdy Ways, which was released in June 2020, just a couple of months into the COVID-19 pandemic. It was preceded by the release of a single, Murder Most Foul, which was released in March of 2020. You say, wait a minute, boys. You know who I am? Of course we do. We know who you are. Then they blew off his head while he was still in the car. Shut down like a dog in broad daylight. It was a matter of time and in the time and was right. You got unpaid debts, we've come to collect. We're gonna kill you with hatred without any respect. So right when COVID got rolling here in the States, that song is 17 minutes long. It is about, uh, well, a number of things, but primarily the JFK assassination. It caught everybody off guard. 
And a lot of people didn't know what to think right away. But it was, as you have mentioned in I think every podcast we've done so far, it became a number one hit single because, well, the country was in a weird place and no one was ready for it. I got nothing better to do because I'm, I'm quarantined. I may as well listen to this 17-minute long new Bob Dylan track. Oh, it's good. Yeah. Rough and Rowdy Ways... We also saw a good chunk of that album performed live. We saw him play at the tour kickoff for the Rough and Rowdy Ways tour, which was in our hometown of Milwaukee last year. If you want to hear what we thought about the show, you can check out our review on the YouTube channel. That was a blast. And in particular, what I did not mention in the review was it was a really nice opportunity for me to hear a good chunk of the album because I hadn't listened to the record at that point and I felt unintentionally, you know, now in retrospect it was kind of cool to hear the new Dylan tracks kind of in the way I think he would almost want you to if he got his pick because he he puts so much more emphasis on live performance than the, what's on the record and I gotta say that set list was packed full of new music Almost all of his old hits he skipped. He just did almost everything from the new album. And I enjoyed the show, you know, and I I liked the songs that he played. And I have since listened to the recorded versions of these songs. And I think this is a strong record and very impressive for a guy who's 80. Yeah. Like I said, I I, I only used it by way of comparison to Tempest. I think Tempest was unduly maligned to some extent. Mm -hmm. But I do think that Rough and Rowdy Jones a solid record. I think his vocals are better or at least clearer or easier on the ears than in Tempest. Not necessarily a better vocal performance, but if the, if he's mad about the critics, giving him a hard time about the voice, he sure you know dealt with that a little bit better here. Is this as interesting as an album that Tempest is? For me, Murder Most Foul gets to be just He's droning on about literally nothing. It is the triplicate of songs on Oh my album. god, I don't even... You know what I'm talking about? They're for you, Johnny. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's like, what? He's just, it's just too much. It's just this long, you know, and honestly, Kennedy was kind of a shitty human being. Yeah. Having yeah. to be like the linchpin of like, I think, because what he's going for is to, to almost, he's almost saying that like sort of the pivot in American history yeah. was the assassination of JFK. Right. And like, no, I don't believe that. And then he gets he starts talking about the eagles yes and I just and the whole thing is it's and the love of Dylan is a very seasonal thing and he just hit it right where people had enough time to listen to a 17 I'm not even joking they had the time to listen to a 17 minute long song they weren't going out because if you're going on on Friday night you're not listening to a 17 minute long Dylan track from 2020 no I think you're you're onto something with that point <laughs> yes. I, I mean I think like you're just like, well, what else am I going to do this month? Um, right, yeah, yeah. I would be listening on a Friday night to a yeah. Bob Dylan track from 2020. <laughs> and then also then listen to the Visions of Johanna right after. Yeah. Another, like, 17-minute long track. But Brownsville Girl. Yeah, bro. Shit, no. <laughs> how many, and you might be one of them, but how many diehard Dylan fans got so butthurt over him dropping references to the Eagles and Fleetwood Mac? <laughs> the classic rock nerd in me loved it. But also because there are so many Dylan snobs who must have been so irritated by that. I actually heard Mark Marin on his podcast bitch about 
Dylan mentioning the Eagles in this song, yeah. <laughs> I think the Eagles are generally more hated than Fleetwood Mac. Certainly. The thing with Dylan is like dropping those names. He's not necessarily even saying that they're awesome. He's just, I guess he knew some of those guys too, because he was friends with Harrison. Harrison yeah. on the West Coast with those folks. They are all, but I, I think maybe it's, he's just, he's painting a picture about a time period. He's including them in this story. Yeah, he's just including them in yeah. this story. I mean, he yeah. talks about uh, the, he said, the, 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 the Grand Dragons and the KKK mm-hmm. in Tempest. It's not an endorsement of the KKK. Right. He's just referencing the fact that that's part of the, the, the time period or whatever. Sure. What he's trying to convey. We're not saying Don Henley is like the Grand Wizard of the KKK. But we're not not saying that. <laughs> and also true. Now that it's Yeah, Henley's pretty easy to hate. But okay. What about what about the other tracks on Rough and Rowdy Ways? Did any anything stand out to you? I remember when we saw him in concert, we both had a, a little laugh at the song. Oh, what was that one where it sounded like a travel brochure? Are you talking about Key West, Joe? Yes, that is correct. That's what I was thinking of. Well, I've seen a lot of Dylan fan accounts on Twitter. They love that song. I guess we're kind of... That's about Buffett. <laughs> That's not a joke. That's kind of most people think. He kind of wrote that song about Jimmy Buffett. And, you know, if, it, if that's true, I am all for it. Listen, we talked about this before. In 2009, he was asked about his favorite songwriters. And the one of the first names out of his mouth was Buffett, unironically. This is why I don't understand. This, they give him the go the Nobel Prize. They're putting him in the league with, like, a Thomas Pinchon or mm-hmm. some of these, like, great literary artists. But fundamentally, the man has an appreciation for popular music, and specifically yes. American yeah. popular music. Yeah. And Jimmy Buffett makes great fucking American popular music. We love him. Yeah. I love the guy. I mean, like Lightfoot. Like, these, these are yeah. not, I mean, these are artists who, within the vernacular of American popular music, and I mean in the broadest sense, they know how to cut a good track. Because they're, 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 they're they, Dylan in a lot of ways. Some of, some of their songs are catchier. They're more accessible. They have a certain... Like Dylan envies some of these guys. Broadly speaking, they are pop acts, but these guys are songwriters in the vein yes. of Bob. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah, they had mutual respect to each other. Absolutely. Yes, if you think of the Jimmy Buffett, Margaritaville, and the commercials and all that shit, of course you're going to roll your eyes because he's a Hawaiian shirt boomer or whatever. But if you go back to his early records, which is what Bob loves, he was very much a James Taylor, Gordon Lightfoot type singer-songwriter. Alright, too much Buffett talk. Any other thoughts on Murder Must Foul or the Rough and Rowdy Ways album? It is a great album. If it's the last um, if it's the last album he ever does, do you think it's an appropriate send-off? Yeah, I want to say this though. I contain multitudes and Murder Most Foul sound really similar, right? Yeah. And it's just kind of him droning on. I can tell multitudes. It's just, hey, I like Walt Whitman, so now I'm going to include a line from Song of Myself in mm-hmm. I Can Tame Multitudes. I don't know. Crossing the Rubicon's good. Black mm-hmm. Rider. Goodbye, mm-hmm. Jimmy Reed. I mean, most of the other songs yeah, I like better than the kind of the bookends of the album. Yeah. Goodbye, Jimmy Reed in particular is yep. a good song. Okay. We have a couple of uh, other things to do before we close out of here. One, I just want to very briefly acknowledge a couple of high-profile Dylan covers that happened in this last decade, as we have in every episode. And I really only have uh, two. One is an album called Off the Grid, Doing It Dylan, which was released in 2014. Can you guess the artist? I, I can't. Charlie Daniels. Oh, God. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a big long string of pearls. 
late era Charlie Daniels did a Dylan Covers record. Did he do some David Allen Co. alongside that? <laughs> no, but you have to remember, we talked about it. Charlie Daniels showed up as a session player back on Nashville Skyline and Self Portrait. And he was a guy that Bob, in his book, made a point of saying how much he liked. And they got along very well. And even though Charlie, unfortunately, went in a very reactionary direction as far as his songwriting goes and became sort of a jingoist, mega-type near the end of his life, he always maintained a love for Bob Dylan, and the selections on Off the Grid are actually really appropriate. I think he does a, a version of Country Pine. Just like old saxophone Joe, when he's got the hog's head up on his toe. Yeah. Isn't he on Country Pie? Yeah. So he's doing songs that fit him. He does a version of Tangled Up in Blue that I think is great. So a little shout out to that record. But we would be remiss if we did not mention the one massive hit in the mid-2010s that has... uh, It's not a strict, direct cover, but uh, the song has Bob Dylan roots. Darius Rucker Wagon Wheel scored a huge hit in 2013 with his version of Wagon Wheel. So ride me, mama, like a wagon wheel. Ride me, mama, any way you feel. Hey, mama, ride me. It's a number 15 hit on the Billboard charts. Now let's be so we were we were not saying the name of that certain bowling alley. Let's make sure we say the name of the artist that actually adapted Wagon Wheel. Old Crow Medicine Show. Who are fantastic. Yeah. Should be listened to and well appreciated far more than Darius fucking record. Yeah. The the chorus of the melody for this song uh, were from a demo recorded by Bob back during the Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid sessions, 1973. It survived as a bootleg. And then, uh, I'm going to butcher this name, Catch Secor of the Old Crow Medicine Show wrote verses for the song around Dylan's original chorus. They split songwriting uh, ownership. It was released as a single for their 2004 debut album. became their biggest hit. But Darius Rucker, his version, went into the stratosphere. A little addendum to that. In 2017, the Old Crow Medicine Show released a full Dylan tribute album called 50 Years of Blonde on Blonde. It's a complete re-recording of the Blonde on Blonde album. Is that your full Dylan cover coverage for yep. the decade? Yeah, what do you got? So I cannot believe that you would not mention it was a four-disc set that came out for Amnesty International. Oh. Chimes of Freedom. Okay. And it's got your, your favorite girls on there, too, doing a cover of, uh, oh, where is she? Oh, boy. Who's this going to be? You know, you love uh, uh, Hannah Montana. Oh, Miley Cyrus. She's on, she's on there somewhere. Yeah, she says, you're going you're gonna to make me lonesome when you go. Yeah. And I will say, it is uh, it's a really good cover. Kesha did a high-profile well, Dylan geez. cover in this time period, too. I wasn't going to bring it up. Kesha's, Kesha's on that album. That's from that album. Oh, okay. Well, that's they, what I'm talking about. Queens of the Stone Age does a cover of Outlaw Blues. Okay. Um, and I know that's probably problematic now with Josh Homme. Uh, <clears throat> a lot of hot water, but yeah, been canceled. Yep. But, yeah, they do a great cover of Outlaw Blues. Good. Artist, not the art. All right. Art, art not the yeah, artist. Yeah, artist, not the art. I support John Tommy, not that music he makes. Damn it. All right. Real quick here. We're not going to do our top three. Let's just rank them. I don't have a top three from this time period. Well, what, what, is it, is, okay, how about this? Is it Rough and Rowdy Ways over Tempest or Tempest over Rough and Rowdy Ways? That's the back and forth. You know, when I first listened to it, it was definitely Rough and Rowdy. 
recent listening, just like right before doing this pod, just to kind of like get my bearing straight, make sure I knew all the, you know, some lyrics and stuff. Mm-hmm. Kind of like I kind of like Tempest better, which I know is not popular. But we're saying uh, they're very close, and they're I head and closer, shoulders. I think they're closer than people want to, and maybe it's just the mood I've been in. I sure. I kind of dig the style and the content of Tempest a yeah. little bit more right now. They're both really good albums. The oh. other three. Yeah. Shadows in the Night would be the third. And then after that, there's Diminishing Returns on the other two. Would Rough and Roundy Ways and Tempest make it into your, I would say, regular Dylan circulation? Yes. They okay. Would. They would. I would say uh, the same for me as well. All right. How about this? Can you pick five songs from what we've discussed? Mm-hmm. I'll go first. Give you some time to think. Yeah. Here. Of this era, all the songs I picked are from Tempest or Rough and Rowdy Ways. My top five from the 2010s are Tin Angel, Scarlet Town, Roll On John, Goodbye Jimmy Reed. And you weren't very nice about it, but I do like I Contain Multitudes. There's some lyrics in there that are a little bit of fun. Okay. And it was very effective seeing him play. No, that I agree. Concert. And I think our list would be almost identical with the exception of I Contain Multitudes. I'm just trying to think through because, candidly, all the tracks on those albums are very good, but none of them are absolute standouts to me. Oh, okay. Sure. So for me, I think definitely I Pay in Blood, Early Roman Kings, Tin Angel, and then I would think off Rough and Rowdy Ways. Probably false prophet, and maybe my own version of you hit hit me somewhat. It's an interesting. Oh, okay. It's lyrically, I like that song. Well, we have Tin Angel in common, so we'll play us out with that at the end. And that brings us to the end of the 2010s, start of the 2020s. You know, this is serving as our conclusion for now. So let's reflect on the series as a whole. So I'll start you off with this question. Think back to. When we did the whiskey sampling. Yes. From then till now, have any of your opinions about Bob changed over the course of this project? His Christian trio, it surprised me. Absolutely. We were making jokes about it during the initial, the first pod, the whiskey sampling, Mm -hmm. and the strength of his musical compositions... Honestly, the lyrics, mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it ends up being, it is praise music, but it's Dylan doing praise music, and it's it's good. After seeing the album cover for Saved, I expected we were going to be like in full cringe yeah. territory, but I liked songs from that record. I liked that run quite a bit. Shot of Love. Yeah. Slow Train Coming. Solid Rock, Gotta Serve Somebody. Those are some good tracks in there. There is some cringe. Don't get me wrong. There are some. Oh, uh, was it? Um, what can I do for you? No, no, no. no. Well, not... Yeah, no, there is that. But uh, was it uh, Covenant Woman? Yeah, Covenant Woman. Holy shit. <laughs> Covenant Woman's terrible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so of all of the episodes we did, which one was your favorite to record? I liked our whiskey taste, though. That was a lot of fun. Not just because there was whiskey, but also <laughs> it was just, it was fun to just kind of do like an off the cuff, more, more off the cuff. We've, we've actually researched somewhat and gone through and really done a little more for, I think, the, the Dylan's or the Decades, both of us. I, but that one was fun because it was just kind of like, let's just sort of talk broadly about Dylan. Yeah, that one was enjoyable. I will say I, of course, given my own tastes, I loved doing the 80s episode because yeah, yeah. we got to talk about 80s pop culture. But I will say, I think... Uh, the fi- my favorite thing I did in preparation for one of these episodes was absolutely our movie night in which we watched Hearts of Fire followed by the 30th anniversary concert. What a great one-two punch. 10 out of 10. Had, highly recommended. And we had a romantic 
fire in my fireplace. <laughs> wow, we did. Like, I was like, hey, what pairs better with Hearts of Fire? It was like frozen like orbs fucking pizza. <laughs> yeah. We got like some scotch, some yep. and we get and then we got a fire going and we watched Hearts of Fire and the 30th anniversary. That was a great night, Joe. It was a great night. Yeah. Do one more time. Let's play uh, not Bob's song. Let's play Fiona's song. have looked at the full discography, what would you describe as your favorite Bob era? And by that, I mean a run of five albums or less. Because I have two answers for that. If you need a minute, I'll go first. So it's, why don't you go first, but I, I have a pretty good idea. Why don't you go first, Jeff? Okay. So my favorite Bob era, while looking at this in the big picture, was, I would say, his mid-70s run of Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, Blood on the Tracks, and Desire. And I didn't know anything uh, really about Desire. I didn't know much about Blood on the Tracks. I only knew Knocking on Evan's Door. So a lot of this music was new to me. I liked some of the hits off those albums, but it turned out I really loved uh, the deeper cuts as well. But I have to give credit to exactly what you were saying earlier. My second favorite run is probably the Gospel Trilogy plus Infidels. 79 to 83. So I think we're in the same basic camp. It's hard for me because... I like almost everything he did from Highway 61 till probably Desire. Okay. His late 60s to like mid to late 70s output is, that's the golden era, Dylan, I think. Yeah. And I I would make a joke like, oh, look at this hot take. But like, really, the pop culture correct answer would be like, well, of course, just his 60s stuff. No, absolutely And it's just not. like, no, I mean, like, I recognize a lot of it as being important for what it was. There's definitely songs from the protest years that I really like. Hard Rain's Gonna Fall, for instance. But are those the songs I'm listening to right. regularly? No. You know what? Honestly, uh, National Skyline, I'll put up against just about, in terms of just sheer enjoyment of music, that's probably the most enjoyable Dylan album. And that was also one of the biggest surprises. Neither one of us were really expecting how much fun that was going to be. And you're right. That was a big highlight for me uh, at the end of our first episode. Yeah. Okay. So what would do you have an answer for your favorite Dylan album? Can you identify one album over all of them that you would point to as your favorite? The one that has, speaks to me the most and continues to is Freewheeling. Oh, Okay. Uh, I think I'm going to say Blood on the Tracks. Yeah. It just has the quantity of songs that I like the most and the highest quality. It's a better album. And and now that I'm older, honestly, the one I listen to the most is probably either Desire or Nashville Skyline. Oh, okay. All right. Flip side. Least favorite. So there, there were some stinkers. The ones we weren't very hot on were records like John Wesley Harding, Street Legal, World Gone Wrong was pretty World, cool. World Gone Wrong, <laughs> Empire Burlesque, Knocked Out Loaded, Down in the Groove, Triplicate. If I remember right, we kind of liked Oh Mercy, didn't we? You weren't big on the production, but it was a I breath of... Some of the, yeah, 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 yeah. It was a breath of fresh air from what he had been doing. I recently re-listened to our 80s episode. You really disliked Empire, Empire Burlesque. Empire Burlesque, I think, is my least favorite. Yeah, yeah. That's the one that stands out now that I'm thinking through all the tracks. Yep. There's no track on it that's even so bad that I rem- I can identify as, like, that's my least favorite Dylan song. Mm-hmm. It's just the entire thing is a shit show. Yeah. 
And my answer comes just a year later, Knocked Out Loaded. And I can identify my least favorite song in Bob's uh, discography, which is his absolute butchering of Chris Christopherson's They Killed Him, which is a song I really like. But Bob's version has a damn children's choir on it. In our first podcast, the Heaven's Door Whiskey Sampling, you gave these five songs as what you would identify as your top five at that time. I'm going to read them off to you, and you will tell me if any of these need to be swapped out for anything else. Okay. My Back Pages, Subterranean Homesick Blues, Isis, Forever Young, and Things Have Changed. It's, pretty, it's a pretty good list. Feel good about that list? Yeah, I do like that list. Every, every grain of sand doesn't... It doesn't... It still doesn't... I mean, if it was going to edge any of those songs out, it might edge out... Uh, the thing is, I just... I love... I, God, I'm going to say it again. <laughs> Damn it. So everybody hasn't seen that episode. I said, I love ISIS. I made a point of really saying how much I love ISIS. <laughs> And Joe, on the YouTube video for that, made a point of really hammering home the idea that I'm, like, promoting international terrorism, yeah. which I do not. And and neither does Archer, so don't get exactly. mad at them either. Yeah, so yeah. It's fine. It's it's hard with dealing with tracks, but, yeah, I, I do love all those songs. I don't think I would okay. necessarily want to make a swap. Okay. My top five were Knocking on Heaven's Door, Rainy Day Woman, number 12 and 35, mm-hmm. Tangled Up in Blue, Hurricane, and Union Sundown. <laughs> I will swap one out, and I, you'll be happy about this. Did you get sundown? No! Damn oh, it! what the hell? You made a good point about the problems with that song, but I, I still just enjoy listening to it. <laughs> okay. I would swap out Rainy Day Woman number 12 and 35 okay. for The Man and Me. Oh, that's nice, Joe. And that is a great song, and it's a Lebowski song, too. So it sure is. I said. I, and I would put it at top, near the, in my top probably like 15... Okay. Well, hey, man, we did it. Dude, I was going to say, this was awesome. This was an, a, an excuse and a, a, a motivator to go through and literally listen to every single thing that Bob Dylan recorded in a, in a studio, mm-hmm. which I had never done before, mm-hmm. because I, even though I'm a pretty big fan. Uh, and it was, uh, it, was, it was a trip. That was great. Well, I'm glad you, you joined me on this. Of everybody I know, you were the only man for the job. Uh, this turned out way better than I expected. And for me, it was an education because I knew Bob's greatest hits. I might have listened to an album or two once or twice before, but doing a deep dive really gave me a, a, a true appreciation for the scope and depth of his material. And, you know, when you and I first became friends, you always insisted how great Bob was. And I, of course, was the casual music fan. I was like, yeah, his voice sucks. I'm not into it. And uh, now here we are all these years later. And I'm a convert, totally on board. This is one of the things I am most proud of that we've done on this podcast. So thank you for joining me for all this. Thank you. Appreciate that. All right. So the, the, the begs the question, who are we doing next? It's got to be Lou Reed. It's not got to be Lou Reed. <laughs> we just we just started this podcast with a talk about on, problematic racial overtones in a song. Does he have a song that's popular that has... Uh... Yeah, is his most popular song, like, really problematic? I, don't, I can't think of any. You could, but you could say that, but that wasn't... It's not the N-word, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, how about how about we and won't? The, what if what if we change lyrics to "and the people of color girls"? <laughs> <laughs> and then we could put it in a car commercial. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Perfect. All right, here we're not going to decide today, obviously. But what about the Rolling Stones? What about 
Neil Young. If you bring in Uncle Neil, yeah. you know I'm on board for Uncle Neil. What about Bruce Springsteen? Ooh. And of course, my pick, what about Jimmy Buffett? That would be a shorter series, that at least. Be... <laughs> in any case, Chris and I will definitely reconvene. Like I said, this has been one of the th- things I'm most proud of that we've accomplished here on this show. So I want to thank everybody who listened. This has been a real treat. And there's no reason why we can't do it again with a, a different songwriter. So we will revisit that and um, have news on that in the future. But I think we're going to take a summer break. In conclusion, I'm just going to cite the only book I used as a source for research for this episode in particular, but I used it in every single episode we did, was Down the Highway, The Life of Bob Dylan by Howard Sunez. Highly recommended. Gets my vote for the best Dylan bio. Okay. Unless there's anything else, we're going to call it a day, and we're going to have Tin Angel play us out. Take it away. You've had your way too long with me. Now it's me who determine how things shall be. Try to escape, he cussed and cursed. You'll have to try to get past me first. I did not let your passion rule You think my heart the heart of a fool And you, sir, you cannot deny You made a monkey of me, what and for why Hey, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember the big four things you can do to support this show that don't cost a dime. Number one, listen to the show. If you're hearing this, that means you did that one already. Thank you. Your time is valuable, and there is an infinite amount of content out there. So you choosing to spend some time listening to this show means a great deal to me. Number two, if you like what we did here, please recommend the show to family, friends, or anyone you know looking for a podcast, particularly about music. Share our links in subreddits, Facebook groups, and recommendation threads. Whatever you can do is highly appreciated on my end. Number three, find us on social media. Follow us on Twitter at PlayThatPodcast. Like us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash PlayThatPodcast. And subscribe to our YouTube channel at YouTube.com slash C slash PlayThatRockPodcast. And roll. Lots of great supplemental material, like photos and vlogs, on all three platforms. As Play That Rock and Roll is very much meant to be a content hub as well as a podcast. And finally, the big ask. Number four. Please give us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I know this part is a hassle, but it really does help the show a great deal because it gives me something I can point to when pitching the show to potential guests. The more social media followers and positive ratings the show has, the better chances I have for booking high-profile guests for interviews. So if you take a moment to give us even just a five-star rating, you are actively giving us a tool to do bigger and better things here on this show. But whatever the case, I appreciate any and all efforts you take to support us here at Play That Rock and Roll. Be sure to join us next time for more great stories and music from the world of classic rock. 
His knees went limp and he reached for the door His doom was sealed, he slid to the floor He whispered in her ear, this is all your fault My fighting days have come to a halt She touched his lips and kissed his cheek He tried to speak but his breath was weak You died for me, I won't die for you She put the blade to her heart and she ran Three lovers together in a heap Thrown into the grave forever to sleep Funeral torches blazed away Through the towns and the villages All night and all day It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 